I think this passage and others like it help us understand why the Bible has spoken so powerfully to oppressed groups of people. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. My name is Natalie Owens-Pike. I'm a graduating MDiv student in the class of 2023 here at Yale Divinity School, and I'm pleased to join you to share the scripture readings for chapter, verse, and season through November. This episode, we have Joel Baden, professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School, and Tisa Wenger, associate professor of American Religious History at Yale Divinity School. They're discussing Psalm 68, verses 1 through 10 and 32 through 35, which is appointed for the seventh Sunday of Easter in year A. Here's the text. Praise and thanksgiving to the leader of David, a psalm, a song. Verse 1. Let God rise up. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire. Let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be joyful. Let them exult before God. Let them be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds. His name is the Lord. Be exultant before him. Father of orphans and protectors of widows is God in his holy habitation. God gives the desolate a home to live in. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain at the presence of God, the God of Sinai, at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you showered abroad. You restored your heritage when it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Verse 32. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens, listen. He sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God in his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So, Tita, Psalm 68 is quite a long psalm. The liturgy only reads a a small part of it, uh, starting at the beginning, which gives us immediate sense of contrast, which really is, uh, I think, pervasive throughout throughout the psalm. 
God's enemies are going to be scattered. Those who hate him are going to flee, right? They're going to be driven away. Let the wicked perish, but let the righteous be joyful and exult and be jubilant. Right? So it begins right away with a contrast between the wicked who are going to perish and the righteous who are going to be joyful. And every time in the Bible that I see something like that, I think to myself, who gets to say who's righteous and who's wicked? Yeah, that's right. And again, like so many passages, as you're saying, it's where do we put ourselves in the story and who gets to be placed in the role of the righteous? But, you know, I think this is like so many songs, a song of praise above all, right? That's how it's introduced, a song of praise to God. Mm -hmm for his intervention on behalf of the righteous. This is what God has already done for his chosen people. This is what God will do. But who are the chosen people, right? This, again, can be claimed by anyone. God is on our side. And it really does open on a militaristic note, as you pointed out. Mm -hmm. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. So this can be and has been used to justify military aggressions and violence in the name of God. And I think we are all much too easily convinced that we are the righteous ones and that we are on God's side. Right. One of the nice things about this psalm, uh, many psalms do exactly what you just described and, and sort of leave it there in a very abstract sense, like, you know, defeat my enemies and vindicate me. And this psalm, though, this psalm very nicely almost gives us a it, its own specific, very clear reading of who the righteous are and who it is that's being vindicated and 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 saved and who it is that's supposed to rejoice here. Because it says in, in, in verse five, we start mentioning orphans and widows mm-hmm. and the desolate and prisoners, right? And in verse 10, we get the needy. This is honestly an incredibly comprehensive in, in a very rare way, you really don't get this very often, just an incredibly comprehensive list of explicitly vulnerable people. Right. We find a God here who's very clearly not on the side of invading armies. Who is he acting on behalf of? He's the father of orphans and the protector of widows. And I find it particularly striking that the uh, text mentions the prisoners. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, especially in an age of mass incarceration, right, where we have so many, uh, particularly people of color imprisoned in this country, that God is going to lead the prisoners out to to prosperity. Seems, I mean, this seems like a real passage that inspires a kind of lends strong support to liberation to a liberation theology reading of the of 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 the bible that god is on the side of the poor and the oppressed and here the incarcerated the focus on incarceration i think is, is is important here because of all of the categories that are mentioned here orphans and widows and the needy most of them are pretty common biblically Prisoners is not so common biblically. We're talking about maybe a dozen references sort of scattered throughout prophecy and poetry uh, in, in circumstances like this. But this one, again, really, I think, stark and, and worth paying attention to. The, the leading out or the freeing of the imprisoned as being something that is a divine act, again, I think is absolutely relevant today. I think this passage and others like it help us understand why the Bible has spoken so powerfully to 
oppressed groups of people. I think of enslaved African Americans earlier in American history who claimed the promise of God as their emancipator, right? Finding hope in these scriptures for freedom from slavery, from the violence of lynching and Jim Crow, and and now from the violence of mass incarceration and police killings. It feels strikingly relevant. Yeah. One of the nice things is, of course, as as specific as the identification of sort of the righteous is, which is to say, as you've said repeatedly, uh, the, sort of the oppressed, the vulnerable societally, the wicked are very much left undefined, right? It is, it, in which case, how do we read it as an, otherwise than those who are the enemies of the vulnerable, right? There's those who, those who oppress the vulnerable are almost by definition the wicked in contrast to the the, the righteous uh, oppressed. And I think that's helpful also, right? There's, it's how do we identify those who are on God's side or whose side God is on and those not, right? Well, if you are on the side of the oppressed and the vulnerable, then you are on God's side. And if you are against them in one way or another, you are being defined by this psalm as the rebellious even. Which I think, you know, there in verse six, it's the, re- the rebellious who are um, to live in this parched land. Rebellious is an interesting word there because rebellious and wicked don't necessarily go together. That is, there's lots of ways to be wicked that don't constitute what we might think of as rebellion. Right. But it's like um, to be wicked is to be rebelling against God, who is the father of orphans and the protector of, of widows. So then... To be rebellious is to act against the widows and the orphans and the imprisoned. God's path is 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 a path for the for the vulnerable, and uh, rebelling is to is to violate that and to 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 go a, a different way. The psalmist is emphasizing the awesome power of God, right, whose majesty is over Israel. But this all-powerful God is not acting on behalf of the status quo or the powerful. They're the ones who are who have to be kind of brought down a peg so that an all-powerful God can support a critique of the powers that be and provides a kind of alternative greater authority, a basis for the powerless to speak out against their oppressors. Sure. If you were to simply read the last few verses, you wouldn't know. The last few verses, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the the skies. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. If you hadn't read the rest of the psalm, you could be a powerful and strong person and say, my power and strength was given to me by God. But it's abundantly clear, as we said from the beginning of the psalm, that that's not what's, right? This this is a, a... a hope for power and strength for those who don't have it, rather than an affirmation of power and strength for those who do. And I would point again, just uh, you know, just a couple of verses earlier here in verse thirty, uh, we have the wonderful trample underfoot those who lust after tribute, scatter the peoples who delight in war. That sounds like the powerful to me, right? So you know, again, I think you know, from start to finish, this is um, the psalm is, is is fairly clear about where the power and the strength lie. And yet, these passages are still so often used by majorities who manage to define themselves as the oppressed. Sure. And actually, you know, this is, this is something that is true of biblical interpretation, perhaps more broadly, just Judaism and Christianity, if I can say something as, as like vague as this. Overgeneralize? If I can overgeneralize a little bit. 
the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, are for the vast majority of them, texts written by people who were vulnerable and oppressed and not in power and had almost no hope of it. The New Testament especially so, but the Hebrew Bible in a more broader, in a broader sort of more international sense too, right? It was written by a marginal, a marginal group of people in their time and place right. who almost never had self-determination uh, and who thought of themselves as underdogs and whose main story is the Exodus story in which they are escaping enslaved peoples, right? This is how they identify themselves. As a result of that, a text like this, and in fact, texts like most of the Bible, don't translate very well into circumstances where the people wielding them actually have power. Right. Which is to say, it's very hard to take a scripture of an oppressed people and claim it the same way when they're no longer oppressed. And what were passages against structures of power on behalf of the vulnerable become read as passages on behalf of structures of power, keeping down the vulnerable. I feel like so much of what you just said explains the past 2,000 years of human history. I strive for that in almost every (laughs) sentence that I speak, and it's nice that occasionally they land. Uh, No, but I mean, but you said actually, one of the important things that you said was, it's not just putting themselves in the, reading themselves in the position of power, it's reading It's people in power in order to appropriate a text written by the vulnerable, assuming the mantle of oppression and vulnerability and martyrdom and suffering, even when, by any objective standard, they're really in the position of the kings or the Babylonians or the Romans, right? That's That's who's now wielding these texts, texts like this one. How do we... And I say we in the broadest sense, how do we as people who occupy now dominant social positions, international positions, political positions, how do we ensure that we are reading these texts the way they were meant to be read, the way they were written, rather than trying to take on a persona or an identity that actually doesn't match at all with, uh, with the, the, sort of the reality of our lives? Right. And that I think that's the right question. And it's ironic that texts written, as you said earlier, by people who really were marginalized and oppressed in their own time, then that structure of the text becomes a way for powerful majorities to authorize their own oppress- oppressive behavior. Thanks for listening. This has been Chapter, Verse, and Season. And thank you, Professors Baden and Wenger, for your insights on this psalm. The transcript of this episode and lots more Bible study resources are available at YaleBibleStudy.org. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School and is produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddard, executive producer Helena Martin, and me, your host, Natalie Owens-Pike. Mixing on today's episode and our theme music are by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season. Join us then.